Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor Nick Davies on September 29th, 2021, during our Wednesday evening service. We have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service for adults at 6.30 p.m., Sunday evening service for the youth group at 6 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. We see this is the first name given to God or that God reveals to us in Scripture and to the rest of creation in Genesis 1.1. Used here, the name Elohim shows us He is, in fact, omnipotent. He spoke, He created out of nothing, which I don't know about you, I can't do that. So today, when we call out that name Elohim, it allows us to recognize God is preeminent over creation and that our chief end is to bring glory to Him. The second name we went over was Adonai. This name for God is quite incredible and so far has been one of my favorites that I've studied. Not only does this name communicate God's position of master, it also communicates the position of the one using it as his slave. Today, though, when we call out his name, Adonai, it allows us to elevate him above ourselves, submit to him in reverence as he is your master and rely on the master who provides. Despite that master-slave relationship, God has called us his children and heirs. Despite him being our master, he has called us his sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 6-7 through says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth, the, sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God. Through Christ. Like I said, this is probably one of my favorite names for God so far that I've been studying. I think it's just an, an incredible way of calling out to Him. With that in mind, today we're going to be jumping into a name for God that has four different endings to it or suffixes. In my research, they were called four different compounds of the name L E L. They are L Roy, R O I, L El Yon. El Shaddai, and El Olam. If you take notes, I'm going to be using a little bit of a different format than I typically do for these. Um, And here's how it's going to look over the next coming weeks. We're going to define a name, then see how and where it's used in Scripture, and then how it connects to us today, which will include some core truths from Scripture that connect to this name and an application for us. We'll call those sections Defined, Used, and Applied. And we'll wrap up each week with one core truth to take away from the evening. So tonight, um, I planned on taking two of those and looking at them, but I just kept writing, and so we're down to one. Um, But we got a lot of content anyway, so hopefully you got your pens ready and your notebooks if you're taking notes. So L-R-O-I, before we get really deep into this, um, I had been calling this L-Roy. I kept thinking... I didn't know Elroy was a biblical name, but it's not. It's actually El Rohi. 
um, which is a little bit more difficult to say than Elroy. Uh, I have a Bible software that kind of helps me out with these words by pronouncing them out loud so that I don't sound too dumb while I'm up here on Wednesday nights. There are two parts to this name El-Rohi. El, meaning God, stemming from that name we learned last week, or a couple weeks ago, Elohim, Elohim, and Rohi is defined as seeing, or as appearance, or clearly visible. This is a bit different of a Hebrew word than what occurs later in maybe a familiar passage, Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles with God. But it does relate, so that's why I want to touch on it briefly here. That word is Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L, which is a name for a town given by Jacob to describe that he saw God there. Basically, it means the face of God or the presence of God. He saw God. But this name for God, El-Rohi, means that God sees us. God seeing you and me. So that leads us two ways, really, to read El and Rohi as they are combined. Either way is pretty much the same. The strong one who sees or the God who sees. This communicates to us that God sees me, that God sees you. It's different from Peniel where we get the idea of us seeing him. This is actually that the God that created the heavens and the earth being a personal God that meets with his people, who sees them and knows them. Not only that, but he sees us clearly, even clearer than we see ourselves. This is beyond just looking down upon someone and saying, hey, there's, that's Scott, he's right there. There's Butch in the back. I know where he's at in this room. Although that's, that's true too, right? God does know where we are geographically speaking. Jeremiah 23, 24 tells us, can any hide himself in the secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not, not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. We can't escape his sight. We can't escape his sight. No, what is being talked about here is seeing to the depth of our heart of who we are. He sees us deeper. He sees us laid bare before him. He sees our deepest needs and our hearts better than we ever can. We see this name pop up only one time in Scripture, and it is found in Genesis 16, 13. So turn with me there. Genesis 16, 13. In this passage of Scripture, we see quite wild family dynamics. To give you a background of this, we're just going to read the chapter of six, uh, Genesis 16. We're just going to read the whole chapter because it's pretty short overall. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave, to, gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abraham, Abram, I'm going to do that through the whole thing. 
my wrong be unto thee, be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, And I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against, will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Beer Laha Rohi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare out Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. A lot going on there, right? Pretty wild story. You think you have crazy family dynamics. Who said the Bible wasn't interesting, right? Point them to this chapter, chapter 16, and it only gets crazier from there. This incredibly contentious moment in the life of Abraham or Abram and Sarah or Sarai and Hagar. Hagar flees from Sarah and is now out in the wilderness. An angel of the Lord visits her and declares that God has heard her, which is to be evidenced by the name given to her child, Ishmael, which means God hears. And then she is to return to Sarah. After this proclamation from the angel of the Lord, Hagar proclaims God's name here. She calls him El-Rohi. The key to her calling him this lies in verse 11, where the angel of the Lord declares to her that God has heard her in her affliction. Look back at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. She recognized that truth and pronounced the name of God to be the one who sees her. There is certainly a connection to be made here in that not only does God see us, locationally speaking, but he also hears us. There is harmony between these two ideas that makes up El-Rohi, meaning that he hears us and sees us. He knows us to the depth of who we are. He knows what we need even before we say it. This is such a cool name for God because for so many world religions, there is this desire to be seen and recognized by their God or gods. And yet due to the reality of those gods not existing, it never happens. They're constantly longing to be seen and heard, and it never happens. Now, as we've talked about recently, and I think DJ hit on this point a few weeks ago in one of his messages, 
that there are certainly demonic powers behind these other gods, but they are not the one true God, and they will ultimately bow before him. This name for God speaks out the truth that we are not insignificant to our God, that he loves us, he hears us, he looks down to us, that each and every single person that treads this earth is loved by him and is known by him, whether you stand against him or with him. He still loves you. He's still pursuing after you. God sees each and every one of us. There's a few things that we can take away from this. Number one, God sees us in our affliction. God sees you in your affliction. Much like when God saw Hagar in her affliction, he too sees us in our affliction. We are not left to our own devices to struggle through this world. Turn with me to Psalm uh, Psalm 34, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Psalm 34, starting in verse 17. It says this, The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Again, this is not just a passive looking at us, knowing where we are locationally. This is active seeing and doing something about where he is seeing us at on our God's part. Those of us who are his children can cling to the promise that he sees us in affliction and provides for us in the midst of it. He doesn't just know it's happening and say, well, good luck. No, he provides for us in the midst of it. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. We are not alone. And whatever it is that we face, we are not alone. We are not promised that we will not experience affliction, but that when we do, our God can and will use it for his glory and will ultimately deliver us from it, whether it be to keep us safe here, to keep doing more work, or to ultimately deliver us from this sinful world. Which, as Paul said, is that not better? However, I know I still got work to do, so I'm here. Uh, Psalm 34, 19, we just read it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. It's reminded me of Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, and if you want to turn there, you can. It says this, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Think about this. Even his own son suffered. How can we expect any less? We should expect trial and tribulation in this world. Romans eight seventeen through 18 speaks to this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whether we suffer or are delivered from this wretched body, our God sees us. He sees us. Not only does God see us in our affliction, but God sees your heart. Which is going to lead to the next two points. God sees your heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, 
But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God sees deeper than just your skin. He sees much deeper to the heart of who you are. Jeremiah 17.10 speaks to this God seeing our heart. It says, I, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Because God sees our heart, this has two implications for you and I. Number one, God sees your sin. God sees you in your sin. For the child of God, we rejoice that the Lord sees, right? It is good that he sees us. He's able to rescue us from affliction. But for the one who stands opposed to him, still walking in their sin, there is no doubt that he sees your sin. Hebrews 4.13, this applies to us too. It's not just people that haven't repented. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Both us who are his and all who are not will stand before him. Nothing hidden, all seen, all laid bare. And as this name carries with it the idea of action upon sight, this is not just passive seeing, this is active seeing. He will certainly act in regard to what he sees in your heart. Here's the incredible thing, though. When we are born again, when we are called his children, when we have confessed and repented, when God looks at our heart, he sees Jesus' blood. We who are in him still sin, right? We live in this somewhat redeemed, but also still actively sinning, and we're waiting for that end and glorious redemption where we will no longer have to deal with that sinful nature that sits inside of us. Yes, we still sin, but Jesus. We who are in him have been bought back by him justified by his blood. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We are not justified by our own works. When God sees to the depth of us, he sees whether or not we've done good things today. No. He sees whether or not we have been purchased by Christ or not and have received that free gift. He knows. He knows what's going on in your heart. And we are unable to trick him with our self-righteousness because he knows that our righteousness is his filthy rags. A quote from a, a gentleman I, I just got a book by. Um, his name is Dane C. Ortland. Uh, he says this in relation to this idea of self-righteousness. That innate dis instinct, that innate instinct to help out God's opinion of us by self-medicated doses of humanly generated recompense seems so sensible, so sensible, intuitive. How else would we live? But the glory of the gospel is that this attempt to help God out is not only unnecessary, but it is also a rejection of God's offer in Christ. It isn't a strengthening of God's opinion of me, but a dilution of it doesn't honor Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf. It dishonors his work. 
and it will make us grouchy and tense instead of humble and free. It doesn't honor Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf. It dishonors his work. Why? Because we're saying it's not enough. But we know Jesus' blood is sufficient to wash us clean to the core. Our sin will certainly not be hidden unless our life is hidden in Christ. And then it is covered, paid for, and abolished under the blood for the rest of eternity. It's good news, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you are washed. You used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Turn over with me to Hebrews 9.22 and 27 as we begin to close here. Hebrews 9.22 through 27. Hebrews 9, verses 22 through 27. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And a lust. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus died for you once. And with that, offered to you forgiveness from your past, present, and future sin, not just for a time, but forever. Forever and ever and ever, when God looks at you, a child of God, he sees Jesus' blood. As we close today, this last verse leads us to ask ourselves a couple questions. Number one, because God is a God who sees, because he is actively seeing and seeing and responding, when God searches the depths of your heart, what will he find? Will he find Jesus' blood? Or will he find self-righteousness that is as filthy as rags? Without the blood of Jesus, there is no remission for your sin. You cannot be, and I encourage you to not be, dependent upon your own self-righteousness. It does nothing but reject the gift of God. It does nothing but reject grace. So number one, when God sees the depth of your heart, does he see Jesus? And number two, when life throws affliction my way, who am I trusting in? It's the same question as the last one. Am I trusting in myself to purify my heart? Because that's never going to work. Am I trusting myself in this affliction to pull me through and get me out of there? 
never going to provide us lasting joy even in the midst of trial. When life throws affliction my way, am I trusting in the God who sees me and the God who knows that I have needs? Do I trust the God who sees? Do I trust the God who provides? We'll see that name later. Or am I trusting myself? The bottom line is this. Am I trusting the God who sees or am I trusting me? That's what it comes down to, whether it's trusting in God to save you spiritually or trusting in yourself to save you spiritually, which won't work, or trusting in God to save you from your affliction or trusting in yourself in those moments of dire need. Let me tell you, one is certainly more important than the other. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? That's why we have what we have over there right now with our kids' ministry. Because we want to see kids come to know Jesus. We want them to know that they can't good enough their way to heaven. That only when God sees them and sees Jesus in their heart will they be a child of His. Ask yourself this week, when God searches the depth of your heart, what's He finding? When God searches the depth of your neighbor's heart, your brother's heart, your sister's heart, whoever it might be, what are they going to find? And you, Christian, as someone who knows Jesus, have the opportunity to teach them and show them from his word that there is a better way. There is a way that is the only way, and that is through Jesus coming into our heart. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our prayer time this evening. Lord, we thank you for being the God who sees, for being El Rohi, the God who sees me. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, but you have sent your son, Jesus, here to this earth to buy us back by his blood. Man, how much you must love us. You are such a good and gracious God. May we never reject that grace and think that somehow we can add to his blood, because we can't. Trying to add to it will only reject the grace you offer us. Lord, we love you. We praise you for all you've done for us. And Lord, as we go into our prayer time tonight, may all be said and done for your glory and your honor. Lord, I'm sure there will be many requests that sit on the hearts of those who are here today, seen by you, but maybe not spoken out loud for whatever reason. Lord, I pray for those unspoken requests that burden us. Lord, you know them, you know the needs, you know the wisdom, the peace, the grace that is needed in each of those situations, and we lay them at your feet. We love you, we praise you, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, that's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you would like to know how, please give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.